0: Hey, my name's John Irwin, I'm one of the pastors here, and we're teaching through the book of Romans. If you're new to the church, we kind of take a book and go through it. We're in our fourth section here in Romans, Romans chapter 2, verses 17, all the way through chapter 3, verse 8. And I've entitled our message this morning, Without Excuse, Why We All Need Jesus. Jesus. Have you ever met someone who always has an excuse for everything? Anybody know that person? Raise your hand if you know somebody who always has an excuse for something. How many of you raise your hand because that is a self-incriminatory statement? Yeah, you know, like why we're late to an appointment because I'm in mean, that traffic on the 101. It's just horrible, right? And it's worse because I have to go up the 23 from Moore Park, which is you know near Hawaii. You know, it's just we always we always have excuses. And um, I've been collecting excuses for a long time, um, especially insurance excuses. And maybe you've seen these. And while I'm doing this, you can grab your notes here. I love for people to take notes, fill in the blanks. And just again, for those who are new to the church, uh, if I talk too fast, there is a website that puts all my teaching notes online. You can get all those that you missed. It's all good. But some insurance claims, excuses. Going to work at 7 a.m. this morning, I drove out of my driveway straight into a bus. The bus was five minutes early. The accident happened because I had one eye on the car in front, one eye on the pedestrian, and the other on the car behind me. Three-eyed three-eyed guy? Just checking. Question on the claim was, could either driver have done anything to avoid the accident? Answer, travel by bus. Okay. The claimant had collided. The next one, the claimant had collided. Uh, collided with a cow the question and answers on the claim were this question what warning was given by you a horn what warning was given by the other party a moo (laughs) (laughs) and then this is the lamest of all excuses I didn't think the speed limit applied after midnight (laughs) and then why in all these excuses do the mother-in-laws get thrown under the bus here's this one I pulled away from the side of the road, glanced at my mother-in-law, and headed over the embankment. That, that is just not fair. Ladies, that is not fair. And then um, this one is good. Coming home, I drove into the wrong house and collided with a tree I don't have. But my favorite by far is this one. The indirect cause of this accident was a little guy in a small car with a big mouth. So, uh, we all make excuses, and Paul, in this section, is going to eliminate some excuses. Now, remember, we're teaching through this section that he says all of us are without excuse apart from the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we use excuses both in our personal lives, and I think theologically sometimes, to rationalize our thinking, defend our decisions, and to justify our behavior. And Paul is moving to this third group of people that are without excuse, and we'll review that just in a moment. But I want to ask you a proposition this morning, because this is the question we're going to answer, and that is, why are even religious people guilty, or without excuse, or fall short? By the way, that word fall short is going to come back again in Romans 3:23 for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So let's start with Paul's observations in chapter 2, verses 17 to 29. And like I'm saying, this is like same song, third verse. So this third section represents the Jews. Now, uh, before you get too nervous, I realize we live in a Jewish community. We just celebrated Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and, and uh, I, we are not here to bash the Jewish faith, that is not. But he is speaking specifically of the religious Jew who would say, hey, 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 I am not only moral, but I am a religious person. And if Paul can show that even the religious Jew is guilty, uh, without excuse, Allah falls short, then all religions, quote, will fall short as well. And so this is especially true of the Jewish nation who was given more light, which he will Illustrate for us. So if you review the last three weeks, he starts with the pagan and or heathen at the end of chapter one. They're without excuse. Last week, Pastor Scott talked about the good and the moral person. First half of chapter two, they're without excuse. And now we're going to talk about the religious or spiritual person that is, quote, without excuse. So today's application is a two way application. We're not just talking about in context and culture with relationship to the Jewish nation but I would uh, say that today's message applies to anybody who, quote, considers them self-religious. And maybe that's some of us here in this room today. We consider ourselves religious. So he's going to lay this foundation that apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ, our attempts to reach God are going to fall flat. They're going to fail. And so today, friends, the great news of the gospel, wherever you find yourself in this journey, Is that God loves you and a relationship with him is important and more important than any religion. That a relationship with him, not ritual, is what saves you. That a relationship with the saving knowledge that Jesus Christ died for you, that's the basis of your salvation. And all the other stuff that gets attached to Christianity the requirements, all these things that we'll look at today, they don't save you. They may be indication of the fruit in your life, but it is not the root of your life. And that's way where we're headed this morning. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, please, 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 do not let the messenger confuse the message as we look at your text today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now... Look at the first section. What does the religious man do? There are three things that religion often does. Number one, it confuses privilege with responsibility. We see that in chapter 2, verses 17 to 20. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law and if you are sure that you are yourself a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, dash, he now finally takes a breath. That's a lot of stuff he says you claim to be. And so what happens is the Jews at that point were overconfident. They were careful and so self-righteous. And it kind of led to this kind of pride that we, we saw. He, he, you see him calling out Pharisees and religious leaders who have a relationship to the law, but don't have a relationship uh, to, to the Lord, so to speak. And with this privilege came responsibility for the Jewish nation. And it would be easy for them to think, we're better than the Gentiles, right? Remember, the Jews did not really dig the Gentiles. In fact, in their writings, they said Jew, uh, Gentiles were dogs. And they're referring to the dogs that would run, round, uh, run wild in the city of Jerusalem. Uh, in Romans 9, 4, and 5, the Jews were, uh, entrusted the covenants and the promises. Even Paul, when he's describing his conversion in Philippians chapter 3, remember all those things... That, Tribe of Benjamin, a Jew of Jews, and righteousness. He did all this whole litmus test on his resume, but he gets to chapter 3, verse 8, and he says, But more than that, I count all that stuff a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And so the religious man confuses this privilege with responsibility, especially the Jew. And so he lists 10 things there 10 things that they could have kind of boasted in. You call yourself a Jew, literally that means to praise. And ultimately, a Jewish person lives to praise God, but that didn't actually happen often. In fact, the Jewish nation, as you know, historically was founded by whose lineage? Who, who, what famous Old Testament character, you know, the Jewish clock starts ticking with, what's his name, remember? Abraham. Now, interesting enough, in the Old Testament, the three, three major world religions, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity all come from the line of Abraham. Now, I'm not going to get geopolitical here with us, but if he could have just been a little more patient and waited for the promise that he'd have a son through his wife Sarah, not hook up with Hagar, we would not have an Arab-Israeli conflict today. I'm just saying, all right? Just saying. Those two women fought, and we've been fighting ever since, I'm telling you, all right? So the Jews had an advantage, in fact, no people in history have ever clung to that name so tenaciously, right? Secondly, they rely on the law. Another finds confidence in the law. The law was made available to him them first. It came via Moses, the Ten Commandments. Then you have the Torah, the, uh, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And then the whole Old Testament is given to the Jew. In fact, 70 times in the book of Romans, he's going to use the word law. That's an advantage. They didn't, take, they didn't pick up on it. Thirdly, you boast in God literally to take pride and they gloried in that in fact if you study who God is in the Psalms man you would clearly have an advantage right because of the character and the nature of who God is in the Psalms you know his will we'll see in Romans 3 2 that they were entrusted literally with the oracles of God the scriptures do you approve what is excellent they know the difference between good and evil they're aware of moral distinctions and what was interesting is some of the religious leaders that day wanted to be noticed, didn't they? They prayed in such a way that the people would notice their, their religious activity, right? And, and Jesus kind of calls that out. In our day and age sometimes, I wonder, we, we don't want to be noticed, right? As Christians, I just want to kind of fly under the radar because I just don't want to do anything that messes it up, right? But we shouldn't be that way. If you're living for Jesus Christ, People should be looking at your life. Uh, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So this past weekend, I I was in Fargo, North Dakota, as I said, I was on a plane. Now, the deal with flying on planes is you never know who's on that plane. You never know who's watching you. You never know whether you're going to make it on somebody's Twitter feed as an embarrassment, (laughs) and I'm just telling you. And so I'm on this plane, and I love talking to people on planes. But of course, I'm in row 35. There is only one row farther back, and that's row 36, and then you have the bathroom, all right? I'm crammed in against the window. I'm not happy because I was in a seating section like Z, triple Z, last person on the plane. Like, what happened to you? Why didn't you get your ticket earlier, you idiot? That's the section I'm in, (laughs) all right? And so there is no overhead compartment for my bag, well, they already took my bag that I was supposed to be able to carry. Oh, you're not, you don't even think about it. Just check that puppy. So, so I not have my backpack. So at least I can put my backpack up there, right? Oh, no, no, no. Because everybody else had put their 97,000-pound roller bags taking my spot. Now, I'm trying to act cool because I knew that I was preaching one week from that time. And I'm thinking I cannot have a meltdown on a plane that I have to get up in front of this congregation and confess my poor behavior because I knew I was going to be dealing with this text. So I, I, did, I did actually constantly think, okay, be a Christian, act like a Christian. Don't sweat the small stuff. You can do this, Pastor John. <laughs> you say, you really talk to yourself? I, I really do, and it's a problem, I know. So I get in there, I, and I, I do that, and I'm so far so good, and I don't think anything of it, and I get into some good conversations, which I'll tell you about at the end of the sermon. But I get through the whole deal, and by the time we get off the plane... I hear, that, like the last 10 minutes, someone, the person behind me taps me on the shoulder. Excuse me, are you a pastor at a Gura Bible fellowship? I go, oh, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? I can't just hide out. And then, of course, my mind's going, did you do anything that would embarrass Jesus Christ? Did you say anything? What was I watching on the TV? I'm, I'm good. I'm just mentally doing this like in three seconds, just making sure that, you know, I didn't blow it here. And I stand up and go, well, yeah, my name is, before I could shake her hand, the, her husband goes, oh, yeah, this is John Irwin. from. He's a pastor at ABF. He goes, hey, Pastor John, I'm Brian. Remember me? I led worship here a couple times this summer when Chad was gone. I go, oh, yeah, Brian, you used my power card. Yeah, okay, we got it. Thank goodness I didn't mess it up, right? Now, I say that in jest, but how many times do we say one thing But our life just completely obliterates our testimony because we didn't live like Jesus would ask us to live. And so that's what he's challenging here. They boast in God, but they didn't quite always live it. They knew his will, but didn't do it. They approved what is excellent, but they fudged. They were instructors in the law, but they acted with such arrogant superiority that it kind of obliterated the words that they were saying because their attitude wasn't Christ-like. And he goes on and on, a guide to the blind, they're maybe more blind than they realize, a light to those who are in darkness, and they were proud of it. Remember, folks, Jesus is the light of the world. We just reflect that light. They were an instructor of the foolish. In fact, we see that in Hebrews five eleven to 14. A teacher of children, uh, really a term of derision, like, hey, hey, we got this, you just listen to us, we know the law, we can preach, we can teach, you just listen to us. And the summary is, they had the embodiment of the knowledge and truth, but they thought they were better than anybody else. That's a problem, friends. And if we are the religious establishment of our day, whether you're Jewish or Gentile in this audience, that's a problem. Because God says he loves the world. And we'll talk more about the essence of the gospel in a bit. And so they had knowledge, but it didn't translate to behavior. Write this down. If information doesn't translate into transformation, we're messed up. You don't have to write the we're messed up. Information has to go from information to transformation, from your head to your heart. And so he's not mocking them. The problem is this. It wasn't that they were overestimating their calling as religious people. They just weren't living up to it. It's our problem as well. It's my problem as well. And especially this next one is my problem. And maybe it's your problem as well. Here's the second thing a religious man does. He condemns others, yet conveniently condones his own personal inconsistencies. Ever seen that? Look at verses 21 to 24. If you then who teach others do not teach yourself, that's a problem. Why do you preach against stealing, but you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery do not commit adultery. You are the uh, whore idols, but do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law, for as is written, the name of God is blaspheming on the Gentiles because of you. Ouch. Ouch. Double Ouch. So he's going to point out this kind of self-righteous hypocrisy and this inconsistency in their behavior isn't going to play well. He's like a lawyer. He's systematically dismantling this false sense of righteousness and exposing their actual status. And that's a problem for us as believers today. When we say one thing and we do another, it confuses people. And in fact, When we condone our own inconsistencies, spiritually, practically speaking, the world says, hmm, that's kind of weird. That guy claims to be a Christian. And so some interpreters would say, no, he's just kind of poking them. He's not really thinking that people act. Because most of their audience probably are Gentiles, first of all. Secondly, most of the Jews that might have been reading this letter uh, didn't really do those things. But I can tell you, either way, these accusations of hypocrisy resonate with unchurched people in our culture today, do they not? Uh, Just in a moment of just self-reflection here. Why is it that sometimes we as Christians and the church are the most judgmental, the most hypocritical, the most unloving, often unkind, think we have it all put together... Is it any wonder that there are times that the non-believers in our life see that and go, yeah, I'm not so into that. It bothers them. Now that doesn't excuse, not that, not, our behavior doesn't excuse their behavior, but it's a reason why I think it is so important that those of you who sit in this room week after week know that there is more to this Bible than putting facts into your head informationally We have to see it transform your life. It's got to transform my life. I got some really bad inconsistency in my life. And any of you have to ever deal with me, mainly the woman in the second row right there on the end? I just admit it right up front. By the way, that's my wife. Just so you know, that's my wife. The woman God gave me. We're we're coming back to you in just a bit. Just hang on. But... I'm cranky when I don't eat. That's, a, that's an excuse. Grow up, buddy. You know, man up. Don't be cranky with your wife just because you haven't eaten yet, right? <laughs> Sometimes I get frustrated when things don't go exactly the way I want them to go. I know none of you struggle with that, but I personally struggle with that, right? And you can pick your sin or inconsistency of choice for yourself but I'm not throwing stones at you. I'm just saying, man, I'm getting nailed in this passage. Whose idea was to teach you the Book of Romans? Nice plan, Pastor Scott. This is like four weeks of just like, oh, man. <laughs> when do we get to the grace part? We're getting there soon. All right. So we, he wasn't poking his audience, but he does ask these five very penetrating, probing questions. He's not speaking figuratively. He says, hey, do you teach or follow your own rules and standards? He's flat out accusing them of being hypocritical. That's the bottom line. They didn't practice what they preach and sometimes we don't either. So write this one down. Don't be educated beyond your obedience. Take it to the bank. Don't be educated beyond your obedience. God's giving you truth. It goes through your head. It gets to your heart and live a different way. It doesn't save you. Those good works aren't saving you. I'm not saying that, but it the fruit in your life is the indication of the root in your life the roots tied to the gospel that's unchanging secondly do you steal now here's an interesting thing historically we knew that these guys were tough business folks at times they they did they did things that was a little edgy they took advantage of of poor people of the temple tax even in the worship setting and that's why jesus got so upset when he cut, cast out the money changers he goes you're you're saying one thing, but you're ripping people off. Not cool. Uh, here's an interesting thing. In, in Jewish law, ro- I'll, I'll quote, robbing Gentiles was forbidden, but finding stolen property and keeping it, that was okay. <laughs> huh? That, that sounds like you're stealing. Think about the sin of Achan's camp. I don't have time to tell you that text in Old Testament. Just Google sin in Achan's camp and look what God thinks about when you don't play by the rules. Thirdly, you commit adultery. Now, I'm sure most of them hadn't committed adultery, but Jesus had raised the bar about committing adultery, had he not? What did Jesus say about adultery in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 30? If you even lust towards that other person, you have committed adultery in your heart. Rob temples. The, one of the things that was kind of crazy, they weren't supposed to have any icons, and they never had idols, and they thought the Gentiles worshipped idols, which some did but they had the practice of trading with pagan temples for profit josephus jewish historian you know accurately described some of the business dealings and it was clearly a violation of deuteronomy chapter 7 verses 25 and 26 that said hey don't be involved with any idolatrous person or temple or icon and then he says and you dishonor god by breaking the law in essence he was saying the Gentiles look at what you do as religious people, quote unquote, and, and they kind of see your misconduct as a way of blaspheming God's name. His name's being drugged through the mud because your behavior is inconsistent with your belief. And this is what Paul's calling out. So even the supposedly religious person isn't going to make it to God in his own efforts, his own abilities, his own strength. Religion is always about man's attempt to reach God. Christianity, the good news of Christianity is it is about God's attempt through the relationship with Jesus Christ reaching man. So their lifestyle and their lips just didn't match up. So let's summarize because in our audience today, some of us are religious people. Now we're well-intentioned. And I'm not saying if you're a Christ follower, you have to be perfect, but when religion supersedes relationship i can tell you these three things that he's just talked about will always happen number one there'll be a failure to live according to the knowledge we possess that's going to be a problem number two that believers will be misled and confused by us if we live inconsistently and number three if we live inconsistently then the dangers that god's name will be profaned or blasphemed And people say, yeah, not so much. I'm not into that. What is the third thing the religious man has to contend to according to the text? Look at verses 25 to 29. Third point. They concentrate on a physical outward ritual rather than on a spiritual inward reality or relationship. And he's going to use circumcision to describe this. Now, I got to tell you something, friends. These next five verses are so complicated and so hard to understand, and so hard to read. I normally do not read from the message. This is your cue. Stand up, hold it up, show them the book. Stand up, stand up. I normally do not teach through the message, but that's a great paraphrase. Thank you, thank you very much. Um, It's by Eugene Peterson. And I want to, if you have your Bibles open, kind of look at verses 25 to 29, but I'm going to read it from the message, and you can see the translation. So circumcision, the surgical ritual that marks you as a Jew is great if you live in accord with God's law. But if you don't, it's worse than not being circumcised. The reverse is also true. The uncircumcised who keep God's ways are as good as the circumcised. In fact, better. Better to keep God's law uncircumcised than break it circumcised. Don't you see? It's not the cut of a knife that makes a Jew. You became a Jew by who you are. It's the mark of God on your heart, not of a knife on your skin, that makes a Jew. And recognition comes from God, not legalistic critics. That's what it's saying there. So let's just give you a couple of big points and let's just keep on moving, all right? By the way, always a fun thing when you're the, you know, you're not the regular preacher and oh, and you get to preach on circumcision. Hmm, wonderful. And if there are children in the audience, you can ask your parents what that rite is and how it was performed. I'll just leave it at that the jews thought that they would be kids are going all what what's he talking about mommy oh ask your father he'll tell you <laughs> the, the, I am it's so fun this whole group right here they're just <laughs> laughing at everything and the second row is now into it as well and these they're going like what does he say whatever all right so the jews thought here's the bottom line the jews thought that they would be spared judgment because they were circumcised. In fact, the rabbis of the day said, you are not going to Gehenna, Gehenna is that word for hell, if you were circumcised. So get this, this adult rite of initiation into the covenant was, which was not a means of salvation kind of grew over, over time historically to say that if you're circumcised, it's like your passport to heaven. Now I have a passport and I just was in seven countries And that got me into those countries. I just showed the passport. I go, welcome in, Mr. Irwin. Glad to have you in Italy and in Greece and in Croatia. And it was a wonderful thing. Well, circumcision had kind of become that. Now, in the New Testament, if it was supposed to be an identification that you're part of God's covenant plan, in the New Testament, what would be our New Testament equivalent of circumcision, which I'm so glad we're in the New Testament here. What is it? What do we call it? it? begins with a B. Baptism, Right. So baptism is that outward symbol of an inward faith that says when you get baptized, and by the way, just for fun, if you got baptized this summer, raise your hand, all right? So those folks right here that got baptized all over, they were saying, I'm a Christ follower, I identify with Jesus by being placed in the water, I'm recognizing that I am dead to myself, and I come out of the water in newness in Christ. Christ died for your sins, then rose again from the grave. It's a great illustration of the gospel of his death, burial, resurrection. That's what baptism means. Another thing about circumcision or baptism, it says, I don't belong to myself. I am someone else's. All right? I said you'd be in the sermon, honey. I'm so sorry. So 37 years ago, we got married. August 5th, 1978. And by wearing this ring, it says a couple of things. Number one, I'm taken. I'm off the market. See this? She's mine. I'm hers. I'm no longer looking. She is my wife. Secondly, it's a commitment. It's a pledge. It's a covenant that I'm going to stay married to you. I love you through thick and thin. It's a covenant we made in front of a lot of people. That, my friends, is what circumcision should have been. That's what baptism should be. And so when we live like that, when we live like that, there's, Paul's not condemning that kind of behavior. What he's condemning is when you are practiced, quote unquote, by being circumcised, but you didn't really have a real relationship with God. If we understand church history the way we should, it is why, the church in England, the Anglican church, and the free church movement in Europe said we no longer want to be a part of the state church. Some of you know that I'm ordained in the Evangelical Free Church of America. They came from Norway and Sweden in the 1850s. They didn't even start speaking in English until the 1950s, and no one even knew the name of the denomination until a little-known preacher by the name of Chuck Swindoll pastor an E.V. Free Church. They go, oh, that's a real church, a real denomination? Whoa, cool. But the whole bottom line of that was they didn't want the government saying, you're a Christian just because you got baptized. They wanted freedom from government intervention that says a Christian is someone who's trusted in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. Not because they behaved in a certain way and followed a bunch of rituals and requirements that the church added that the Bible never really even talked about. Now, we've been more sophisticated in our way of adding to the Bible by saying things like, it's good, like go to church, tithe, become a member, serve in Awana. By the way, I'm not saying any of those things are wrong. It's just that those things don't save you. And we're building this case in these first four weeks to say, we're all without excuse unless... Ah, You've got to come back next week here, Pastor Scott. All right? We're going to get to it in Romans chapter 3, 4, and 5. All right? So... Let's agree that all these good church activities that, of course, we would like you to be a part of, they're important. But in the process, can we just not be cranky Christians? I just don't want to be a cranky Christian. I, I just, if, I'm, if I've been cranky with you, I, I confess it. I, I, I don't defend it. When I talk to my neighbors who don't know Jesus their names are Mary and Cheryl I want them to see Jesus first not my religion not my standing when someone cuts my hair and I tip poorly but talk about how cool my church is bad move how about over-tipping? You've got a lot of people in the service. That, how about over-tipping? So when you give them a tip, they're like, whoa. Where are you from? What church you go to? When you have a business dealing, um, I just bought a house here in a girl. I should have never been able to afford it. It dropped $300,000, fell into our price range. It's a God thing. But I told you that I wanted to meet the people. I didn't want to just buy their house. I wanted them to see me. I wanted to see them one of the things that we did was I know I probably could have gotten that house a little cheaper but these poor people, that thing had dropped so many times, fallen out of escrow not to their heir, and and when it fell into my price range Cheryl and I talked about it we said we're going to give them a full price over for that price I'm not going to nickel or dime them I want to tell them what I do and why I want to be in their house and what God's going to do in this place. They were not religious people but one of our congregants actually worked for him at Gelson's. And I had had no idea that that conversation would get back to her, and she came up to me, Rebecca Green, a few weeks ago and said, wow, my former boss talked about your conversation. And it was so fun to not have messed it up. She said, it was, guys, I'm telling you, I'm just being complete. You think I'm kind of like false humility. Anybody who's ever played golf with me knows that I... (laughs) I need forgiveness for my words and my actions. I'll just leave it at that. And so I want when I deal with people in the business world and they know that I'm a Christian and then, oh, they find out that I'm a pastor, that they don't then go, oh, get back. Like, I've heard of your kind. Like, you say one thing, but you don't really live it. That's my prayer for me. That's, I've been in this text for a couple weeks now. And I just want you to understand, I am not you know, dissing on the Jewish culture or nation. By the way, when you're talking about the Jewish culture religiously and in, in our country, you, know, you have reform, you have conservative, you have orthodox, we're not gonna get into all of that. But what we are gonna get into is that we have the same issues today. As Christians, sometimes we say we're Christian, but we just don't back it up. And that's what all Paul's saying, you're not backing it up with behavior that resonates with your belief so the jews then are going to object to what they've just heard and he's anticipating that objection look at chapter three verses one through eight and that's what we'll and they have these kind of three imaginary questions the first one is the question of advantage so the the, it says in verse one then what advantage has the jew in other words what's the advantage of being a jew if you can be circumcised or uncircumcised you be in your heart not in your heart And so he kind of goes from kind of really pushing down being accusatory to anticipating that, hey, this is a legitimate question. And so he answers and he says, whatever failings they have, they're still God's special stewards. Isn't that awesome? Some of you are from a Jewish heritage. God revealed his truth to you first. You are his chosen people. The Ten Commandments came to you first. And we talked about Abraham and Isaac and his descendants and all of that. The other thing the Jews did, they were entrusted the oracles of God, it says there in verse 2. In other words, God says, you've got to protect my word. If it wasn't for the Essenes and the, the, the scribes and the copiers of Scripture, we're in big trouble. But they protected the text, they prepared the text, and they prepared for the Messiah. All things. And think about the Dead Sea Scrolls. If that group hadn't protected that that's probably done more to ensure the authenticity and reliability of scriptures that we already believed in but just verified it a hundred times over again the second question comes from verses 3 and 4 the question of annulment so if some are unfaithful does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God in other words if we're unfaithful does it somehow nullify God's faithfulness and he says no may it never be no in fact in the Greek it's like no no emphatic no no in fact, he says that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. The bottom line is let God be true because he's going to be true and your words should back up your belief and your behavior. And so the great news for us today who are religious folks is that God's faithful even when you've been unfaithful. Now, some of you who've been Christians for a really long time, I think you overlook and maybe I overlook this, this salient fact that God is faithful. Talk to somebody in this audience where they were far from God. And then let's say in April of this year, God made, became real in their life and they trusted Christ. You know, they're six months along in their in their journey with Christ. My experience is the newer the Christian, with this boatload and bag of sin on their back, oftentimes they don't they don't have any confusion about God's faithfulness, right? They're like, Thank goodness. God rescued me from this and they got 37 years to point it out like man I did this I did this now the flip side is many of us became Christians like at age six right and I've told you my story before I won't repeat it but the bottom line I've known the Lord since I was six years old and it's easy to take that kind of faith for granted you can do the math I've been a Christian 53 years that's a long time And sometimes it's easy to forget that I did nothing, zero, nada, nine. Give me some other words that say no. Nothing to do with my salvation. Jesus paid that price. Amen? This is when I wish we were a little more Baptist and maybe even, you know, in the South. Amen? Amen. Amen. There we go. That's awesome. So there is nothing, <laughs> thank you, thank you. There is nothing that can annul, get rid of, replace God's faithfulness. That's because His forgiveness is new every morning. Isn't that great news? Thirdly, third question they might come up with this question of accountability in verses 5 through 8. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Let me say it in a different way. If our unrighteousness puts God in a better light, isn't it unfair to punish us? In fact, aren't you kind of saying that God's condemnation of his people illustrates that His justice? Well, that doesn't seem fair because he's just using people to his advantage. So how can he judge them? That's what he's saying there. Or here's another way of saying it. So if my sin makes God look good, well, let's be bad so he looks even better. And that's how sometimes we think. He debunks the myth that we sin so grace can abound. That's messed up thinking. We don't sin more so grace will abound. Now, there's an actual word for this theologically. It's called antinomianism. Say that three times fast. Antinomianism. All right. You said it three times fast? Good job. It's the false view that faith relieves us from the responsibility or obligation to moral law. Uh Uh-uh. That was a heresy that they dealt with a long time ago. There is still an adherence to moral law. And so the question is, Paul doesn't, in fact, by this time, Paul doesn't even dignify responsibility. Whatever. That's just messed up. Messed up. So I want to ask you a question. There are two kinds of people in the world. Do you want to be the person that God uses because of you're experiencing His grace, you're living for Him, you want to be used by Him, or do you want to be the kind of person that God uses in spite of? Because he's going to use you either way, right? Think of all the examples. There are the because of examples. Think of many of the Old Testament saints, Moses and Joseph. God used them because of. In fact, Abraham, God, his, his, his faith was reckoned as righteousness, right? But there's plenty of examples of people God had to use in spite of themselves. They weren't cooperating. Pharaoh is one example of that. He used a hardened heart for his glory. God uses you know stubborn donkeys, uh, stubborn prophets. He uses them in spite of Samson. Most of his life, God had to use him in spite of an unbelievable Achilles heel that he had spiritually. And so our, the good news is that God's faithful. That you don't keep sinning, so grace will abound. And God wants to use you. And There's just a question: Do you want to be used because of? Or do you want to be used in spite of? Now when I want to land the plane point three god's outrageous faithfulness this is going to be a summary because i want you to hear very carefully i know some of you are of jewish origin in this room i know there was last hour we are not attacking the jews as a nation or culturally but what paul was bringing out is these things and i think there's a lot of question like what about jews they're kind of like christians they believe in half the bible is not better than none of the bible and It's better than being a part of a cult. Where do the Jews fit in this whole issue of salvation? So let me just give you like a tutorial real quick. Um, And and just sidebar, in January, I'm going to teach a class on world religions because it's becoming over and over, and we're going to do it as a, a equip you class Sunday mornings. We'll talk about Islam judaism christianity and then some of the cults that are very popular they say hey well what about jehovah's witnesses or mormons or whatnot where does that all fit so i'm going to do that so i'm only going to give you a taste of this right now okay what does god think about the jews today well let me tell you historically what he's thought about them first of all he wept for them right think about after the triumphal entry he knows he's going to go to the cross that the hosanna, the palm frowns, woo, yay, yay. It's all going to turn to his crucifixion. Remember he wept, oh Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem, I wish I could have brought you to my breast. Number two, think about how the, uh, the Seder is used today. If you're a Christian, you see all these components that point to Christ as the ultimate Lamb of God. God uses their own culture to save them. And to read them, think about end times. There'll be two witnesses. They'll be martyred. They go to preach to the Jews, and then think about ultimately the faithfulness to God to the Jewish nation for two thousand plus years. The seven-day war, being restored as a nation. Now I realize we can go kind of geopolitical here, but I'm talking globally about how God feels about the Jews. Here's the big question I get: Well, well will Jews go to heaven? All right, you're preaching now. I'm the questioner, do Jews go to heaven? Let me ask you, how does anybody get to heaven? What's the answer? Through what? Through Jesus. Yeah, the Jews that accept Jesus Christ as Messiah will go to heaven. This is very close to us personally. Some of you know that I have a son. He was a prodigal for a long time. Two years ago, he started dating a girl who was Jewish. On Christmas Eve, two years ago, she trusted Jesus as her Yeshua, her Messiah, her Savior. She's culturally Jewish, but she loves Jesus. And quite frankly, she's having a better influence than the pastor's kid did on her. I'm just saying, all right? I'm, just, I'm thankful for Hava. I don't know if they'll get married. And if they listen to this tape, Hava, no pressure. John, think everything through. Um, But I am saying that those Jews who go to heaven will be the same way you go to heaven, through the blood of Jesus Christ. I told you a few weeks ago I was in Rome, and I want to show you two pictures. The first picture is this door, and this is from the outside of the church looking in. This is called the door of absolution. The Pope says currently that if they're going to open that door, it hasn't been open for over 25 years, and then flip to the next picture and we'll go back and forth. That's the inside Interesting enough, that's what's on the inside. And that's the door has been sealed shut. That's the inside. Go back to the outside picture. That door is going to be taken down somewhere in the next couple years. And they claim that anybody who goes through that door, walks through that door, their sins will be absolved, forgiven. I got a problem with that. Go back to their picture. What makes a difference is that. Your sins are forgiven because of what Christ did on the cross. Amen? Nobody can absolve you of your sin, only Jesus. Jesus is the one who died for you. Now, remember when we started this message that there are no excuses. Everybody needs Jesus. So today, if you're sitting in this auditorium and you don't understand what the gospel is... The bad news is you're going to be without excuse in about 30 seconds when I finish presenting this gospel. The good news is today you could be ushered into a relation with Jesus Christ by this simple understanding and these simple facts. Number one, heaven is a free gift. It is not earned or deserved. Number two, God loves you and doesn't want to punish you for your sin, but he's holy and he has an accountability or justice because of our sin. Number three, He loves you. And he loves you so much that he died on a cross to pay for the penalty of your sin. Number four. It's not enough to just know those facts intellectually. And this is the game changer. What is a Christian? What is the essence of the gospel? It is trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. Sola fida. Alone. Alone. And those of you who came to that life-changing decision, someday when you die, you'll be with Him in Heaven. And those of you who die apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ will be, spend eternity in separation from Him. And the reason I never tire of giving that explanation is because every week, somewhere in the world, people go from death life remember 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 God doesn't take bad people just to make them good people he takes dead people and makes them alive that is the gospel Amen? amen amen and so will Jews go to heaven yes if Jesus is their Yeshua their Messiah so God isn't so concerned about our denominational affiliation he is concerned about our spiritual identification. He wants our hearts to be tender towards the things that are tender that tenderizes his heart. And so I'll be honest with you. My biggest fear as a pastor is that I would somehow bring shame. I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be that person they go, "Oh man, what happened to Irwin? He walked so well and now he left his wife, he divorced her, or he took money from the church, or pick any big sin that gets you fired at a church, all right? I don't want to be that guy. I want to end well. I want to finish well. And I don't want to just finish well. I want to bring all you with me, and we're going to finish well together, amen? amen. Now you say, but when we sin, like, do we have to wallow in it? No. But what you do have to admit is that you can't live that way. Confess it and move on. When you become a Christian and you sin, God doesn't kick you out of the family. Just like when you sin in your own family. you may Well, some of you may be getting kicked out of your house. That's a bad analogy. Um, but you're still part of the family. Now, there, what God's done is that He loves you. I want to close with this because as transformation happens in my life, there are two things as our band comes up that I want, to, I want to do better at. Number one, I want to be humble. I, I want to be more humble, not, and I'm not in a false sense. What I want to be is when people ask me questions, I want to help them process the question, not be the shell answer man. So that's one practical takeaway for me because I saw myself in this text this week. Could I have been like a religious zealot of my day today? Oh, yeah, I got that one. Oh, you, you don't understand God's sovereignty and human free will choice? Oh, pfft, yeah, easy. Like, Come and have a cup of coffee. I'll explain it all to you. Those are tough questions. I want to be more humble, and I want to be less judgmental. I want to be, I want to be less disappointed in people's choices. Think about the people who are far from God. Why do we hold them to such high standards that they should live like a Christian when they don't own, know Jesus? Maybe we got to love them in a way that they haven't seen before. And I, I want to be that. So I'm on this plane. I said I'd tell you another story. So I was a little nervous because at the end of the plane, like, hey, Pastor, oh, I can't, I, wasn't, I, was, I was made, I, somebody found me. But I didn't tell you what they would have heard for the th- Three hours I was on the plane. So these two women sit down next to me. I'm I'm not on the aisle. I'm crammed up against the the window. You know, I'm pouting about my bag, but I got over it. Um, (laughs) And we get into this conversation. Well, the one um, uh, was from China. And I thought, ooh, instant connection. You know, Coco's been living with us. But like, she was out like within 90 seconds. Like, She was like, I think she had flown in from Amsterdam and like she was not going to talk. So that's left the one in the middle. So the one in the middle, we start talking, I start and my my deal is I never tell people that I'm a pastor. Because that's just a buzzkill. usually in most conversations. (laughs) It's like, we're done here. On come the headsets, out comes the Newsweek. They turn their shoulders. You know, they pass gas. I don't know. They're just like, you're done. We are done here with you. So but i don't tell her i do not i do not reveal information i just start asking questions and i i figure out she's about the same age as my daughter she has two kids she's a businesswoman she's traveling out comes my cell phone that shows the pictures of the grandkids i'm married i'm not hitting on you i'm doing all the right things so i can have an appropriate conversation so we get through this whole conversation and we're talking about parenting and marriage and covenants and I kind of allude that I am involved in doing weddings quite a bit. And so by the end, she, she goes, what, what, what do you do? I said, you will never guess. <laughs> I said, uh, actually, I'm a pastor, and if you could have seen her eyes, they get this big, and without prompting, she goes, you don't seem very religious. <laughs> now, I think... She thought that was a problem. I'm thinking, yeah, that's awesome. Because that's the problem. We have this image of a religious person. I said, and you talk about God teeing up the gospel. I said, that's because I am not very religious. It's because I believe that a relationship with Jesus Christ is more important. I said, what's your faith background? She goes, oh man, I'm kind of ex-Catholic. And I said, and let me fill the blank and you're feeling a little guilty. Yeah, how'd you know? Because I got a whole church full of them at my, at my church. Well, tell me about your church. And she says, I gotta tell you something. When you were in the bathroom at the beginning, before you sat down, we somehow got in the conversation with the girl who's now waking up who's listening to the conversation. That was cool too. I, they, they got into this conversation about what do you do when somebody religious is trying to convert you on a plane? And I said, what did you guys say? And she said, we put on the headphones, we turn around. (laughs) And I said, I'm thinking about that. And I said, so you didn't put on the headphones. And you said I wasn't very religious. And she said, you're different. I've never in my life thought being different would be a compliment. But today I'm thinking about, can we be different in a culture that has this misperception about crazy, cranky, judgmental, unloving Christians and replace it with this model of evangelism, that Jesus loves you. He's been chasing after you. He loves you and wants to make a difference in your life. And if you'll just let go, maybe you'll meet him in a real way for the first time I'm guessing there are people here who know somebody who need to hear that message and I'm guessing you could be the conduit to them to see the real Jesus not the religious Jesus the real Jesus the real Jesus that when you're done with examining him you're without excuse because ultimately everyone needs jesus we just need to surrender i don't often do this i don't ask you to do much but sit and listen but i think there's a whole bunch of you that there's someone you're praying for and you're on the verge of tears because i am because you think about them you go i don't want them to spend a christless eternity so if you're that person and we're we're praying for someone while we're singing today Let's come forward, and we're going to commit to praying for them. And you just kneel all across this platform, and we're going to pray by name while the song's singing. I know, go, oh, do I have to identify that I'm praying for someone who's far from God? That's up to you. You can do it in your chair. But if you'd like prayer with me, I'd pray with you over that. Amen? Let's sing. Ultimately, we've got to surrender to his faithfulness. You know, as we're kneeled down here and you're standing there, there are names that are being... Prayed for right now that Jesus would become real in their life. And um, man, if you have someone, just talk to someone today. Here's who we're praying for. And find someone that will pray along with you. Some of them are your kids. Some of them are your relatives. Some of them are your in laws. Some of your neighbors. Some of them are your co workers. But God is faithful. And He's ultimately what we're surrendering to. And so as we've sung today, let me send you out with this prayer and um, we go with His blessing. And now unto him who is faithful, to the God of all forgiveness, the God that redeemed us, that took our life from the pit. May his love abound through us. May our words be soothing to those who encounter us. May our life be giving and sharing to all we come in contact. Lord, to you, the God who allows those things that makes those things true in our life. To you, we give all the glory, the power, the dominion, and the majesty now and forevermore. Amen. 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 God bless you. Have a great week.